Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist. It's good to be with you this morning. We are uh, going to be celebrating communion this morning, and so uh, if you didn't get your communion kit uh, from the Narthex on your way in, they're, they're out there. We're still using those kits uh, for now, and uh, so those are available if you want to uh, celebrate communion with us at the end of this service. If you're worshiping online with us, a welcome to you as well, and I'd encourage you to to get some bread and some juice ready so that you can celebrate communion with us at the end of the service as well. If you haven't already filled out the attendance pads, please do that. We do want to have a, a record of your presence here with us in worship this morning. Pass that along to others that are in the pews with you this morning. There are some announcements uh, on your announcement sheet in the bulletin. Today is your last chance for ordering your Mother's Day carnations. So if you didn't order your Mother's Day carnations yet, uh, make sure you get those orders in today. Uh, this, this Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday, is our Rock Out for Mental Health. Uh, who's going to be running with me on Saturday? Yeah, there's some folks running, uh, walking. Are you going to walk? Yeah, okay. If you're, uh, if you're not either running or walking, I hope that you are sponsoring uh, this run-walk uh, next Saturday. We're raising money for mental health, uh, and uh, that's in memory of Rock McCullough, so I hope that you'll all want to be a part of that. There are several other announcements in your bulletin. The uh, double, ba double baby shower coming up on May 16th. Uh, the coins for missions next Sunday. Uh, the dates for vacation Bible school. Uh, take this home with you. Mark all those things on your calendar so that you're uh, a part of all those great events that are coming up. We're here this morning to offer our worship to God, and so I invite you into a spirit of worship, and I invite you to stand as you're able and join in the call to worship. Praise the Lord, I will extol the Lord with all my heart. They are pondered by all who delight. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He provides food for those who fear him. Please remain standing and turn your hymn books to 361 Rock of Ages Cleft for me. It's also on the screen.
please be seated and join me in the opening prayer. Come to us as a light from heaven, sovereign God. Pierce the shadows of doubt and despair, anger and scorn, that we allow you to rule in our lives. Turn us from ways that deny your rule among us. Awaken us from dull routines to worship that is alive with awe and wonder, spontaneity and joy. Surprise us with a presence we cannot avoid, a summons we dare not evade, a mission we may not escape. We are gathered by the love of Christ that we may feed others as we have been fed. Amen. Please remain seated. Turn in your hymn books to number 355, Depth of Mercy. It's also on your screen. We will sing verses number 1, 3, and 4. bow in prayer. Oh Lord, how amazing is that depth of mercy that each of us has received, your grace that has welcomed us time and time again. Lord, we know that we have sinned against you and against one another so many times, and we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us once again and restore us to that right relationship that comes only from you, from your grace, from your sacrifice in Jesus Christ. We turn ourselves over to you and to him to live within us, for that is the only place where we may find true life. Lord, thank you. Thank you that even though we have continued to turn away, that you have never turned away from us, that you have continued to draw us back by that depth of mercy that you have for us and for all people. May we extend that same mercy, that same grace to those around us, even those who have sinned against us, that we might live according to that grace and that love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. May that be the foundation of our lives. May that be the foundation of this church in all that we do, that all of our ministries might bring you glory through that way of Jesus being lived out in us. May those around us know the love of Christ, the love that comes only from you. Be with this church family as we continue to minister in your name to one another and to those of this community and to those around the world, for we know, Lord, that all the world as our brothers and sisters, everywhere that there is suffering, we cry out with them. And so we pray for those around the world who are going through trials, especially people in Ukraine whose lives have been uprooted 
even lives that have been taken away, families that have been torn apart. We pray for your restoration, Lord. We pray for protection. We pray for peace. Peace around the world. Peace here at home. Peace within our hearts. Peace that comes only from knowing you, your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we offer our worship and our prayers. As we offer to you now the words that he has taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue to worship God through the giving of our tithes and offerings as the ushers come to wait upon us. Please join me in the prayer of dedication. You have brought us to yourself, O Lord. You have given us the gift of faith. Your mercies toward us are more than we could ever hope to deserve. We stand in awe before you today, offering our gifts, our hearts, our abilities, and our worship. Come now, O Holy One, and make us wholly your own. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I was just saying, if you were paying attention, very good. The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, verses 17 to 20. 
the conversion of Saul. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what, to, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him <clears throat> stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. For Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he gained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God, the Word of God for the people of God.
This may very well be the greatest conversion story in the entire Bible, perhaps even in the history of the world, really, from persecution to proclamation, from murderous threats to miraculous deeds, from doing everything imaginable to shut down the church to doing everything possible to spread the church around the world. This man, Saul, whom we first meet in, in this section of Acts, went from trying to murder Christians to trying to make the whole world Christian. He became the person we know as the Apostle Paul, the man responsible for founding more Christian churches, evangelizing more countries, converting and discipling more believers than anyone else throughout all of history. The first time that we meet Paul in the New Testament is just shortly before our reading for today. Acts chapter 7 tells the story of the first Christian martyr who was named Stephen. The Jewish authorities, outraged at the things Stephen was preaching about Jesus, decided that he must die. Verse 58 says, Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. A few verses later, Acts 8.1 says, And Saul approved of their killing him. That is our first introduction to this remarkable man, Saul, whom we know as Paul. Contrary to popular belief, his name did not get changed from Saul to Paul when he became a Christian. He's still called Saul for the rest of chapter 9. When Acts comes back to him in chapter 13, he's still called Saul right up until Acts 13.9, when it says, now Saul, also known as Paul, there's no story in which his name actually gets changed, like when God told Abram, you will now be Abraham, or when God told Jacob, you are Israel, or when Jesus told Simon, you, I tell you, you are Peter. Nothing like that, simply an indication that he was known by two names, Saul and Paul. Saul is a Hebrew name, Paul is a Greek name, so he probably went by Saul when he was with other Jews, and by Paul when he was out in the Greek-speaking world, which he was for most of his ministry. But that's a side point. The main point is that this is his first introduction in the Bible, the first introduction of the kind of man that he was. He stood by and watched as the first person other than Jesus himself to be killed for his Christian faith was stoned to death. He approved of the killing. Not only did he approve of the killing, he seemed to be emboldened by it. He gained a sense of purpose from it. The rest of the verse goes on to say that a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. In the next mention of Saul, our passage for today from Acts 9, we find out that Saul was at the forefront of that persecution. Not only did he approve of it, he became an active leader of it. He took, he took it upon himself to seek out those believers who had scattered throughout the countryside, track them down, arrest them, bind them, bring them back, kicking and screaming back to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and murdered just the way that Stephen had been. Who does that kind of thing? Seriously, who does that? Who hunts down other people because of a difference in belief, in order to have them killed. I know there are people in the world, even today, who do that kind of thing, but they are not the kind of men we look up to. We call them religious extremists. We consider them terrorists. That's what a person is who would kill others for a difference of belief, a terrorist. That's exactly what Saul was, a terrorist. Of course, he would not have claimed that title. He probably would have preferred something more like religious purist or perhaps simply faithful servant of Yahweh. That's what every terrorist believes themselves to be, a faithful and true servant of God. But when that so-called faithfulness leads to execution, that is a sign that something has gone terribly awry in one's faith. Something had gone terribly wrong in Saul's faith. And more than that, there was something terribly wrong in his mind, in his heart. He was a disturbed man. Let's call it what it is. He was downright evil. 
Some of the most horrendous evils in this world have been perpetrated by those who believe themselves to be defending God. That's what Saul was. He was evil, evil in the name of God. Later in his letters, Paul would describe himself as the worst of sinners. He wasn't exaggerating. It's easy for us to write write off a, a statement like that as a sign of humility or exaggeration, but Paul actually meant it. He, he knew it to be true. He was, at heart, an evil man. Oh, he may not have been a sinner in the conventional sense of how we tend to define sinner. He wasn't sexually immoral. He didn't try to cheat or steal. He followed all of the conventional rules and laws. He followed them to the T. He was meticulous in keeping to the law delivered by God unto Moses. But he had hatred in his heart. Hatred toward those who believed differently from him. And he had an absolute certainty in his own rightness. That's a a deadly combination. Certainty that was so assured and hatred that ran so deep that it led to murder. That's the worst sin in the world. Not murder itself but the hatred and the judgment and the self-righteousness that lead in that direction. That's the worst sin in the world because it claims the Word of God as its defense. Evil in the name of defending God. Yes, Paul was indeed the chief of sinners. Why do we need to understand that? Well, we need to understand that because of how God responded to this worst among sinners, what God did to this man who was so filled with self-righteousness and such evil, God came to him and loved him and saved him. Jesus came to him personally and turned him around. Now, let's be honest, that's not what any of us would have done with a man like Saul if we had been in God's shoes. Maybe I'm being too hasty in my presumptions. Maybe you're a better Christian than I am. But if I were Jesus, and I got to pronounce judgment on a person like Saul, I'll tell you what I would not do to him on that road to Damascus. I would not be saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? and then giving him another chance. No, I'd be saying, zap, you're dead. (laughs) I'd be sending him immediately to that place where he can be punished for all the pain and suffering and death that he inflicted on others. But then, if I did that, I mean, if God actually acted in that way, then that would prove Saul to have been right about God. That would show that God is vindictive and harsh and eager to pass judgment and inflict punishment on sinners. And the whole point of this story, the point of the entire Bible really, is that God is not like that at all. Praise God, Saul was absolutely wrong about who God is. God is not vindictive and harsh and eager to pass judgment and inflict punishment on sinners. It's the exact opposite of that. God is forbearing, long-suffering, eager that all should come to repentance and that everyone should be brought to salvation and life. Even the most God-awful person like Saul. Now, if God felt that way about Saul, a man who was trying to shut down the church, a man who was killing his own people, a man who had the hatred of a terrorist in his heart, if God loved him enough to forgive him and save him and and work through him for the good of the world, how do you suppose that God feels about you? How do you suppose that God feels about the person next to you? 
How do you suppose God feels about the person that you can't stand to be around or even look at? Will Campbell was a Christian activist from Mississippi in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. Campbell found that during the struggle for racial equality, it was often the good church folks that fought hardest against the cause. The people who were supposed to be proclaiming the message of God's grace to all people were the very ones defending laws which kept folks separated and favored one race over another. One day, Will was challenged by a newspaper editor named P.D. East. P.D. East was not a Christian. He was skeptical of Christianity because of the division and hatred and violence being promoted by good church folks. He couldn't understand why Campbell, who was battling for racial justice, was clinging to the Christian faith when most white Christians were so antagonistic to the cause. So he asked Will, in ten words or less, what's the Christian message? Campbell's answer was, we're all scoundrels, but God loves us anyway. Except he didn't use the word scoundrels. He, he used a word that starts with the letter B, and it means an illegitimate child. And he used that word intentionally, not, not for its shock value, but for its theological accuracy. Spiritually speaking, we are all of us illegitimate children. We have no birthright of our own when it comes to eternity, but only what is given to us by God's overflowing love and grace. Now, Campbell didn't realize it at the time, but P.D. East, the man that he gave that answer to, actually was born to a single mother and had been called that very word many times throughout his life. The statement obviously struck deep with him. Sometime later, Will Campbell's best friend and fellow activist, Jonathan Daniels, was murdered by a police officer. It, it was one of the darkest moments of Campbell's life, and he, he was trying to cope with the loss of his good friend and the seeming triumph of evil over justice. And it was at just that time of darkness that P.D. East insisted on challenging Campbell's definition of the Christian faith. Let's see if your definition can pass the test, he said. Was Jonathan a scoundrel? Remember, he didn't use the word scoundrel, but the other word, meaning illegitimate child. And Will answered that Jonathan was one of the gentlest people he had ever known. But that everybody is a sinner, and so yes, in that sense, he was. Next, P.D. asked if the policeman that murdered Jonathan was a scoundrel. That was easy to answer. Absolutely, he was. And then P.D. asked the clincher, which one of them do you think God loves the most? That question, asked at that moment, drove the truth of the gospel home for Will Campbell. He writes, the notion that a man could go to a store where a group of unarmed human beings are drinking soda pop and eating moon pies, fire a shotgun blast at one of them, tearing his lungs and heart and bowels from his body, turn on another and send lead pellets ripping through his flesh and bones, and that God would set him free is almost more than I could stand. But unless that is precisely the case, then there is no gospel. There is no good news. Campbell went on to become a self-proclaimed apostle to the rednecks. He realized that, that God's grace extends not only to those working for justice, but even to those who stand opposed to the God's justice. Saul stood opposed to God's justice. He didn't know it. He thought that he was defending the way of God, crazy as that sounds to us. Just like those good church folks of the 1960s who stood opposed to racial equality, thought that they were defending God by defending the ways of their society. But they were not really defending God any more than Saul was defending God by having Christians killed. He was a murderer, plain and simple. God knew it. And yet God loved him. God saved him. God came to him. 
in the person of the risen Christ and turned his life around for good. And God does the same. The same for everyone who allows Christ into their consciousness long enough to realize the truth. God loves everyone, and God is willing to save anyone, even the worst murderous scoundrel in the world. That's not always easy for us to accept, is it? To illustrate the point, we have another character in Acts 9. He's introduced in verse 10 like this. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. A disciple in Damascus. Remember where Saul was headed in this story. To Damascus. And remember why he was going to Damascus. To arrest any disciples he found there and drag them back to Jerusalem bound for trial and likely for death. Ananias was precisely one of the people Saul was on his way to go have murdered. And God directs this man, Ananias, to go to the house to which God will direct him and find there a man named Saul of Tarsus who has seen a vision and been struck blind. And God wants Ananias to lay his hands on Saul and pray for him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias has to be thinking, You have got to be kidding me. Is there some kind of mistake here? Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I go into the house where Saul is staying and lay my hands on him so that he regains his sight, isn't that going to make it a lot easier for him to arrest me? That's not exactly what Ananias said to God, but he did point out to God how much evil Saul had done and how he was persecuting the church in Jerusalem and how he was coming to Damascus to do the very same thing there. Are you really sure about this, God? But the Lord said, go, for he is my instrument that I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, perhaps I'm reading a little bit too much into the story here, but I have to think that maybe there was something encouraging to Ananias in the fact that God told him that Saul was going to have to suffer. I mean, you tell me to go pray for this man who has presided over the death of Christians, and and that once I do, he's going to get off scot-free, and everything's going to go well for him, and he's going to have an easy road for the rest of his life, and eternal bliss on top of it. I'm not sure I want to have any part in that. But you tell me, yes, he's a Christian now, and he's going to have to suffer mightily for it. Okay, fair enough. Seriously, though, this is one of the biggest transformations for Saul. Saul goes from being the persecutor to the persecuted. Before meeting Christ, Saul had been ready to kill for his faith. After meeting Christ, Saul was ready to die for his faith. There is a world of difference in that. Are you willing to kill for your faith? If you are, then I'm here to tell you that ain't right. The combination of certainty in one's own righteousness and hatred for another that leads to murderous desires, that is a false religion. Faith that is pure and true leads to nothing but love and forgiveness and the desire that all might have life. And that love and forgiveness and desire that all might have life may even lead one to give up their own life for others. That is what Jesus did on the cross when he gave up his own life so that we could be redeemed. That's what Will Campbell did when he preached the truth of reconciliation in Christ to people who were fighting and killing to keep the races separate. 
That is what Stephen did when he was stoned for his preaching and Saul watched on approving of his death. That is what Ananias did when he dared to follow God's directions right to the very man who had been seeking to have him killed. That's what Paul did when he went around the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, even when it would mean beatings and stonings, even when it would mean imprisonments and shipwrecks, even when it would mean his death. No longer willing to kill for his faith. Paul was now ready to die for his faith. Thanks be to God. I invite you now to join with me in the prayer of the great thanksgiving as we prepare to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey, and set before us the way of life. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. By your great mercy, We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of your Son from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Once we were no people, but now we are your people, declaring your wonderful deeds in Christ who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. On the day you raised him from the dead, he was recognized by his disciples in the breaking of the bread and in the power of your Holy Spirit, your church has continued in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. I invite you now to take the piece of bread. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him.
cup of salvation poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Thank you for that grace which saves us and for that Holy Spirit that you have placed within us to empower us for holy living. May we be always open to your Spirit and live always by your grace. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as you're able now for our closing hymn, which is number 369 in the hymnals, Blessed Assurance. So let's sing together. As you go from this place, may you continue to praise your Savior, not just with your lips, but with your lives. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.